It's important that we honor the key role women have played in shaping of our country. However, it wasn't until the late 70s that women's history was taught in our schools and was almost completely absent in media coverage and cultural celebrations. That's why the Education Task Force of the Sonoma County Commission on the Status of Women, of which I was chair, initiated a Women's History Week. That was a celebration in 1978, centered around International Women's History Day. The National Women's History Project, later located in my district, was founded in 1980 by many of the same dedicated women who started uh, Women's History Day. These women poured their hearts and their ideas into promoting and expanding a week-long celebration for women and of women because several dedicated women, including Molly McGregor, Molly Murphy McGregor, the late Mary Ruth's daughter, Maria Cuevas, Paula Hammett, and Betty Morgan, decided to write women back into history. Thousands of schools and communities now commemorate Women's History Month by bringing lessons on women's achievements into the classroom staging parades, engaging neighborhoods in the celebration of the contributions of women. The hard work and dedication of these wonderful women and the support of the Sonoma County Commission on the Status of Women paid off. They started a national movement, and in 1981, Congress responded to the growing popularity of Women's History Week by making it a national observance, and eventually, in 1987, expanding the week to a month. Hello, and welcome to the C-SPAN in the Classroom podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues Craig and Pam. As we wrap up the month of February and the celebration of Black History Month, our team is looking ahead to March, in which we honor the contributions, accomplishments, and milestones of women throughout history and in present times. In the opening clip, we heard from former Representative Lynn Woolsey discuss the origin of Women's History Month. She discussed the contributions of many individuals, including educators, who saw the importance of incorporating stories of the people, movements, and milestones for the advancement of women's rights into the classroom. In addition to steps that were taken at the local level and in Congress, it's also important to recognize the action President Jimmy Carter took. He designated March 2nd through the 8th in 1980 as National Women's History Week. In his message announcing the celebration, he stated, quote, From the first settlers who came to our shores, from the first American Indian families who befriended them, men and women have worked together to build this nation. Too often, the women were unsung and sometimes their contributions went unnoticed. But the achievements, leadership, courage, strength, and love of the women who built America was as vital as that of the men whose names we know so well. It was interesting to learn about the origin of Women's History Month and how it has evolved over the last 40-plus years as we prepared for this episode. Since 1995, presidents have issued annual proclamations designating the month of March as Women's History Month. These proclamations recognize the contributions that women have made to the United States, including the achievements that women have made across all disciplines. So, we invite you to join us as we recognize and celebrate the Her Story of American Women. 
we'll take a listen to a few of the many C-SPAN classroom resources that can be used to introduce students to those who have helped and those who continue to forge a way forward for women in this country, including Nellie Taylor Ross, the Sisters of St. Francis, Dr. Meredith McGregor, and Jacqueline Woodson, among countless others. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thanks for joining us for this episode as we recognize Women's History Month. In considering some of those milestones that you mentioned, Zach, it's important to touch upon the suffragist movement and how their generation worked to create change over a number of years. Let's listen to this clip of author Lucinda Robb as she discusses the significance of the movement. I want to get out there that it was a very long movement, over 70 years, and it went on for three generations. The first generation of suffragists, they lived a long time. In fact, many of the leaders lived well into their 80s. At one point, I was reading Sojourner Truth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony all lived to be 86, but still none of them lived to see the 19th Amendment passed. So for any activist today who think that change isn't happening fast enough, and let's be honest, it's probably all activists, there's right there, there's an important lesson from the suffrage movement. You really have to be in it for the long haul and never give up. But on the positive side, it was the largest expansion of political power in U.S. history, and it happened without war or violent social upheaval, which we think is a good thing. That's why you should study it. The suffragists trusted in the rights given to them by the Constitution, and they figured out how to win by working within the system. The change that they managed to create was permanent and was enduring. And best of all, they left us the playbook on how we can drive institutional change. So in this clip, Lucinda Robb mentions just a few of the first generation of women who advocated for change. And this clip is part of the larger lesson plan that we have titled Women's Suffragist Tactics. In this lesson, students will explore some of the methods that were used by suffragists, including Lucy Stone, Susan B. Anthony, Alice Paul, Ida B. Wells, among others. And they'll hear how suffragists used engaging storytelling to appeal to uh, their audience, how they used the media and publicity stunts to obtain coverage in publications, and even about the role of radicals in pushing the movement forward. So uh, once students view the videos, they can research a current issue that's being debated, one that interests them, and evaluate the tactics that are being used to affect change. They could write their own speech in support or opposition to present as if they were at a rally uh, or create a political cartoon or poster for an event. It's a great way to promote civic engagement among young people around contemporary issues that, that they may be personally passionate about. In thinking about advances that were made, another resource that we have talks about some of the breakthroughs that occurred for women in Wyoming's history. Let's listen to Laramie Plains Museum Executive Director Mary Mountain talk about the women of Wyoming who became some of the most prominent pioneers in history. 
We are in the women's hallway of the Laramie Plains Museum in the Ivinson Mansion. In this hallway, we begin to tell you the story of why Wyoming was so unique, granting women this right to vote, hold property, and uh, elected office. December 10th of 1869, our Wyoming Territorial Legislature dictated this, and it was signed by Governor Campbell, granting women this act. Really so remarkable that we have a copy of this. They do have it at the Capitol, but we have this copy that is so extraordinary to see that writing, that fanciful writing that said what was happening in the West. Because of this act, December 10th, 1869, giving women full rights alongside men, we had the first woman voter in the world, Louisa Gardner Swain. We had the first woman bailiff, um, Martha Simmons Boys Atkinson. We had the first women on a jury. We had all of Wyoming's women able to be in the legislature. This was Mary Gadot Bellamy. We had Esther Hobart Morris, who was the first woman justice of the peace out of South Pass City. We had Nellie Taylor Ross, first woman governor in the world. All of these were the cavalcade fallout from the beautiful Suffrage Act of December 10th of 1869. There were some real trailblazers that paved the way for women to advance, and the issue was still being debated with the Equal Rights Amendment. That was first introduced by Alice Paul in 1923, and in the 60s and 70s, the movement gained momentum in Congress. Many states were on board to ratify it, but it stalled. This is still a hot-button issue that people are advocating for today, and teachers can use our current deliberations lesson entitled, Should the 1972 Equal Rights Amendment Be Ratified? so students can learn about the different perspectives on this topic. This year, the National Women's History Alliance theme is Women Providing Healing, Promoting Hope. Their website states that it is both a tribute to the ceaseless work of caregivers and frontline workers during this ongoing pandemic, and also a recognition of the thousands of ways that women of all cultures have provided both healing and hope throughout history. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. In support of the theme, our next resource is a bell ringer that focuses on the role of women in American medicine during the late 1800s. It begins by telling the origin story of the Mayo Clinic and how Dr. William Mayo and his sons had a private practice established in the town of Rochester, Minnesota. But things changed when in 1883, what would have been classified today as a Category F5 tornado, ripped through the town of Rochester, killing and injuring numerous people and leaving many homeless. So in the aftermath of this tragedy, Mother Alfred Mose of the Sisters of St. Francis, she was instrumental in helping to lay the foundation for what would become the Mayo Clinic Hospital. So we're going to listen to this next clip of author Virginia Wright-Peterson as she talks about the role of some of the other key women in the founding of this institution. 
And for a town of just a few thousand in the middle of the prairie, this was a significant event. And it could have been the end of the city if it hadn't been for a woman in town, Mother Alfred Mose, who was the mother superior of the Sisters of St. Francis, who had a congregation here. And she, um, and she collaborated with the physicians um, at, right after the tornado to take care of people the best they could, but there was no hospital. They took all of these injured people to dance halls and gymnasiums and tried to take care of them in those forums. Um, but after the, after the tornado, Mother Alfred approached Dr. Mayo and suggested that a hospital be built here. But Dr. Mayo was reluctant. He said hospitals cost a lot of money, and at that time, hospitals had a bad reputation. They were typically places to go to die and not really to be healed. And so he wasn't, uh, he wasn't sure this was a good idea. Mother Alfred was a very persistent woman, and she, said, she suggested, if the sisters build the hospital, would you and your sons practice there? And he, he agreed. And six years later, St. Mary's Hospital um, opened a very small facility with 27 beds, and Dr. Mayo and his sons began practicing there. Dr. Charlie Mayo's wife, Edith Graham Mayo, is a, an important founder of Mayo Clinic. She was a farm girl, one of 13 living in this area, and she decided she wanted to become a nurse. So she and her sister and two friends got on the train and went to Chicago to go to nursing school. Well, they graduated, and Edith, came, um, Edith got assigned to a doctor in Chicago uh, to work as his nurse, and she got fired on her first day. When she showed up, that doctor said that she was too young and too pretty to be a nurse in his office. So she came home to Rochester very discouraged, and her mother said, well, go down and see Dr. Mayo. They've just opened that St. Mary's Hospital and see if he needs a nurse. Well, it didn't bother Dr. Mayo that she was young and pretty. He hired her, and she was the first um, formally educated nurse in the Mayo practice. And she started teaching those sisters of St. Francis that had started that hospital. They were all teachers by background. She taught them um, very fine nursing care and started administering the anesthesia for um, the operations, which led to their high-quality um, outcomes. This resource can launch in-depth discussions with students about the experiences of women in the field of medicine and how it's evolved over time. Somewhat related to your resource of women in medicine, Craig, is a collection of resources that we have about current and ongoing scientific endeavors in which women are playing a central role. On a very recent edition of our C-SPAN Q&A series, our network hosted Dr. Nancy Shabbat from Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Laboratory and Dr. Meredith McGregor from the University of Colorado Boulder. An ongoing project at NASA is the James Webb Space Telescope, which will, quote, built on the legacy of previous space-based telescopes to push the boundaries of human knowledge even further to the formation of the first galaxies and the horizons of other worlds, according to the Space Telescope Science Institute. Dr. McGregor is an astrophysicist who is working on this new technological advancement. Students can engage in our C-SPAN classroom lesson entitled The James Webb Space Telescope to learn about this project, and simulate mission control, and participate in NASA's hashtag UnfoldTheUniverse art challenge. But let's listen as Dr. McGregor discusses the beginning of her career, 
her efforts to increase STEM interest among young people, and questions that young people ask about space. So it sounds like you have been excited about space science most of your life. What, what uh, got you started? Yeah, um, so I have kind of always been excited about science. I got really into science fairs when I was a small child. I did my first science fair when I was in kindergarten. It was a project on how a siphon helps a toilet flush. Um, and I was always just really fascinated by physics, trying to understand how the world works and kind of put the mathematics behind that. Um, and so I wanted to be a physics major and I actually started doing astronomy in college. Um, I, on a complete whim, took an introductory astronomy course, and I just loved it. We got to spend nights at an observatory, and I had never really considered that as something I was going to do as a career. Um, and then it was kind of full steam ahead from there. In your bio, uh, it, 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 you write, outside of research, I'm actively involved in a number of outreach programs and organizations supporting women in STEM fields. I recently designed an astronomy curriculum for the Carnegie First Light Program, a weekend science program for Washington, D.C. middle school students, and I serve as a worldwide telescope ambassador and taught science club for girls throughout most of college and graduate school. I, I wanted to read that because uh, STEM science, uh, STEM studies have been so important in the national education educational debate for the past two decades. What are you seeing about the interest among young people in space science particularly, and most importantly among young women, since that's been a field of interest for you? Yeah, um, so I, you know, I care deeply about that from a personal level, right? I remember being in college and being the only woman in my astrophysics classes and, you know, feeling, you know, out of place, right? Like this, you know, is something I'm passionate about, but it's not a place in which I see myself represented amongst the people who are doing it professionally. Um, and I think astronomy has come a long way recently. We've, we've started to recognize this, right, and take action. And there's space for people like me or professionals who care about this to actually make an impact. So another important area to consider, and one that ties in with writing women back into history, is literature. And one of my favorite authors, whose work I used in my classroom as an author study, or in readers and writers workshops is Jacqueline Woodson. Her writing style and themes draw students into the stories she shares and helps them generate personal connections. Let's listen to a clip from a lesson we have in which she talks about her writing. Jacqueline Woodson, throughout all of your work, and we have it stacked here, poetry plays a role. Yes, it does. I I think um, I couldn't be a writer without poetry. Um, I think as a young person, I was afraid of it. I thought it was this kind of hidden code that I wasn't meant to understand. Um, and as I discovered poets and, and the, the lyricism of poetry, I began to realize how much it mattered to me, the musicality of it, the white space, all the ways that, for me, it works with the narrative. So when I'm writing, I am reading everything I write out loud. I'm trying to hear how it sounds in the world as well as paying attention to how it looks on the page. And so I'm trying to limb the poet, poetic part and the narrative part. So when you write a book like Harbor Me, uh-huh. do you base it on real-life events going on? Is that, is that how you drew this story? I feel like Harbor Me has been coming to me for a long time. Um, 
I, I think we look at the book now and think of it as current events, but the things that have been happening to those young people has been happening in our country for a very long time. The issues of deportation, of uh, mass incarceration, um, the, the troubling history of what happens to young brown boys in this country, um, everything, um, the, the othering of people who learn differently. Uh, so so it, I think what happened with Harbor Me is I was, I, I'm constantly trying to figure stuff out. Like, where do we find the hope in this, right? Where do we find the hope when we look around and everything happening feels so negative? And, and I began to write these children into existence and write that hope in their lives into existence. So, so it, uh, I think someone could look at it and say, oh, these are ripped from the headlines. It's like, yeah, maybe the headlines of 1990, headlines of 1980, 1970, 1950. But, but they're histories that people have been dealing with a long time. This clip is part of our Jacqueline Woodson author study lesson that has an accompanying choice board, which offers flexibility for students to work independently in class or distance learning. It is clips in which Woodson talks about some of the elements of writing, including setting, point of view, and themes in her work. Students can also listen to and talk about her books, among which include Harbor Me, Another Brooklyn, and The Other Side. Thanks for sharing, Pam. Uh, While it's impossible to cover the many contributions of women throughout American history in a podcast series, let alone in a singular episode, uh, including topics like the 50th anniversary of Title IX this year, We do hope that the stories and the C-SPAN classroom resources that we provided and discussed today in this episode will be beneficial to you and your students as you recognize and celebrate Women's History Month. Just as a final reminder, you can access all of the programs and teacher resources that we shared today on our podcast page at cspan.org slash classroom. There you'll find activities to use with your students throughout the month. Uh, If you would like to connect with our team, please email us anytime at educate at cspan.org. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and share it with friends and colleagues. Until then, thank you for joining us.